Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. We wanted to tell you about one of our favorite podcasts about writing, Writing Excuses. This is a short form weekly podcast on the craft and business of writing. And it's hosted by our friend and former guest of the show, the writer Mary Robinette Cowell, and five other writers and publishers, Dan Wells, Howard Taylor, Aaron Roberts, and Don Juan Song. Each week since 2008, this podcast has shared advice, stories, and homework assignments designed to help you keep writing. And as part of a special treat to our listeners this November, NaNoWriMo season, Writing Excuses will have five episodes that focus on the novel writing process. They'll talk about inciting incidents, multi-thread plots, and the three-quarters problem, in addition to emotional resolution, among dozens of other things. So give it a listen, Writing Excuses. Find it wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, listeners. I'm Brooke Warner, one half of Right Minded's hosting squad, and welcome to this week's Right Minded. If you're a longtime listener, you know that I sometimes get the privilege to interview authors in various capacities. The last onstage interview we brought you was with Nicole Chung, who I got to meet and interview at the Bay Area Book Festival. Today, I'm so pleased to share an interview I did this fall with a friend and colleague of mine, Allison Gilbert. Allison and I go way back to my time at Seal Press when we published her book, Always Too Soon, Voices of Support for Those Who Have Lost Two Parents back in 2006. And Allison graciously invited me to interview her for an event with Thurber House, who describes themselves as a community where laughter, learning, and literature meet, which is right up our alley for sure. Alison Gilbert is a writer and champion of women's untold stories. The book I interview her about in today's episode is called Listen World, How the Intrepid Elsie Robinson Became America's Most Read Woman. And this is a book that's co-authored with Julia Shears, and it's the first ever biography of American columnist Elsie Robinson, who lived from 1883 to 1956. It was again published by Seal Press, now an imprint of Hachette. Before we get into the interview, I want to say how much I enjoyed this book. You don't often think of biographies as pleasure reads, at least I don't. I think of them as heavy lifting, uh, even as interesting as they are. But this one is truly pleasurable. It's got so much in it, too, about California history, about the great William Randolph Hearst, who owned all the newspapers in the country at the time, and whose legacy lives on, of course, through Hearst Communications and the famous Hearst Castle on the central coast of California. Elsie, however, was a woman ahead of her time. 
a self-starter, a workaholic, a single mother, a singular voice. If you're a writer, an aspiring author, a published author, reading about Elsie and her determination will knock your socks off and inspire you. A little more here about Allison, too. Allison Gilbert writes regularly for the New York Times and other publications. In addition to co-authoring Listen World, she's the co-editor of Covering Catastrophe, Broadcast Journalists Report September 11th, the author of Always Too Soon, Parentless Parents, and Past and Present, which are books that center loss and grieving. Allison began her career in television news, producing investigative and law-changing stories for CNN, MSNBC, and other outlets. Her work has been honored by the Associated Press, the Society of Professional Journalists, National Association of Black Journalists, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and others. Allison lives in New York, and it is my great honor to have interviewed Allison and now to be bringing her to your ears. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, Allison. It's great to see you. What a pleasure. I am so excited. Well, and I think we should say to people that we know each other through Seal Press. And so that was a good segue. I worked at Seal for almost eight years. You published a book during my tenure there. This book is a Seal Press book. So I wanted to launch off there. I mean, given that this is uh, you know, a second endeavor, I think. Do, do you have, is this your second or third book on seal? It's the, my third. Yeah. Yeah. Third. Lucky. So, yeah. So I'd love to just hear, let's start with the inspiration for the book, which you talk about a bit in your acknowledgements and then how it landed at seal. Yeah. I buried the seed of the story, not buried, but I put it in the acknowledgements because really it's a co-authored book and the seed was really my personal entry point. And I only found out about Elsie Robinson because my mother died. And my other seal press books actually were about grief and loss. Uh, What happened after my mother died is that I went back to my childhood home and my job on that particular day was packing up my mother's books Uh, getting our house ready to be sold, my childhood home. And my mother had retyped a poem on a piece of onion skin paper. And she had folded it up and hid it inside this book. And I had never seen this particular book before. I never had taken it off the shelf. And it fell out. This poem fell out of the book. 
And it was a grief poem that was the most tough love poem about loss that I had ever read. And mm. it was attributed to someone named Elsie Robinson. And I had no idea who Elsie Robinson was, but this poem is called Pain. And it basically said this, and I'll just sum it up. Be lucky, feel lucky that you had a mother worth missing. And at a time when I was really bereft, mm -hmm. it was just like a, a slap in the face. You know, it was like this wonderful, tough love moment. And then you go on to discover who she is. I mean, this was, you, you write in the acknowledgments, this was 1996, right? Yes, yes, so nearly years ago. It's a long time ago. And then so this trajectory of someone that sparked your interest then that's connected to your mother, obviously you can't tell the whole story, but how does one go from, you know, the this seed that you mentioned and then eventually to partnering with Julia Shears? I, I am very curious about the partnership. You know, what, um, I'm guessing you brought her on. And if that was the case, how did that happen and why? Yeah, I was on a hot pursuit for um, a partner. I uh, was so uh, emboldened that this was a story that had to be told that I just felt that if I found the right partner to help me get this over the finish line, to share in the process, that the book would be so much better. I felt that I would be better in a partnership. You know, we talked about that. I come from television news. And so that's a very team sport profession. And so I didn't feel uncomfortable with that at all. In fact, one of my other seal press books, always too soon, I partnered with Christina Baker Klein, uh, right. was an editor uh, that I brought on board on that project. So I I don't know. I love books and I love writing. And I just feel like there's no reason why authors, generally speaking, feel like they must do the slog alone. I just feel that sometimes, at least for me, I am better in partnership and I mm. love it. Well, that's inspiring too, because I think there are just a lot of different ways to write. And I'm curious, I mean, do you think that it was because of your collaboration with Julia that you were able to get it over the finish line? I mean, do you feel noticeably different than your standalone books in terms of the energy behind this? There is no way this book would be published and reviewed so favorably, you know, by the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and it's gotten a lot of wonderful traction and all of it is because of this partnership. It would not have happened if Julia did not come on board. She is exceptional. And I am so lucky that she agreed to be uh, with me as my partner on this project. I was struggling to, for a really long time on my own doing the research. I mean, for more than 11 years, really wow. doing the reporting. Uh, as you had mentioned, this is the first biography of Elsie Robinson. So there was a lot of digging to be done. And when I was thinking about the kind of partner I wanted, Julia checked every single box. One of them, which may not sound that important until I explain to you why, I needed my partner to be in the Bay Area. 
I'm in New York. And so much of Elsie Robinson's life takes place in the Bay Area and also in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. And I wanted boots on the ground for research archives, for going to see things in person and writing biography, the dirty little secret, I will say, it's very expensive Hmm. for writers. And so to me, it was a very practical solution to have two writers on this project. I'm on the East Coast. Much of her life also takes place here in New York, but also in Massachusetts and also in Vermont. So we could divide and conquer. And I'm just uh, all praise to Julia Shears. Well, it seems like an amazing partnership because the book is really a page turner. And that's a good segue because I, we, you and I were talking a little bit earlier about, I guess, creative license. I had used the word fictionalized and you're like, no, 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 you know, it's very journalistic and reported. And I want to ask you about that because it's a biography. It's categorized as a biography. It is super well-researched. And it's also, I love it because even if you don't live in the Bay area, which I do, I found all of the stuff about, you know, San Francisco in the early 1910s and early 1920s so fascinating um and and you got so many details in there about what life was like what life was like for women uh and so obviously it's this huge journalistic endeavor as you just said and you are doing things like entering into Elsie's point of view notably you are necessarily recreating dialogue Right. So there are certain aspects of, you know, that just felt to me maybe blur a bit into historical fiction. It could have been a historical fiction book, but it's not. It's a well-researched biography. So talk to me about the difference between, you know, this book could have been written by a different writer as a historical novel uh, novel by else in Elsie's point of view, but instead it's a biography. Yeah, well, I want to nip a little bit of that in the bud. There is no way there's an ounce of fiction in this book. This is a well-researched, highly documented, the end notes tell that story. Every single detail has been, uh, it's there for your perusal where we got the information from down to the weather. And so if we say, I'm making it up, that it was 70 degrees on this one particular day, it's because we went back to the weather reports on that particular day, in that region, in that town. And so I take it as a compliment that you would say it reads like fiction, but I will tell you, uh, there is not one ounce of this book that is fiction. When you mentioned that the dialogue uh, might have been something that we took liberties with, not at all. If Hmm. we have dialogue, it is because we have the letters and we have the journals or we uncovered the actual words that she used in her 1934 memoir. So Mm. zero is fabricated. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, that's even more impressive actually, because it's quite (laughs) a heavy feat and, and, and a lot of information is in there, including tons of conversations. And you do this really interesting thing, which I'd love to hear you talk about, which is that you use her actual words. And so throughout there's the narrative prose, but then there's Elsie's words show up and they're italicized. And so what was the stylistic choice there? Yeah, I am so glad you're mentioning that. So Julie and I are two women writers charged 
with writing the first biography of another woman writer. And there was an embarrassment of riches of Elsie Robinson's own words. Because she was a columnist and because her career spanned more than 30 years, we got to build the first in existence database of Elsie Robinson's columns. We estimate that she wrote nearly 9,000 pieces of content columns in her career. We put that all into a database and then we were able to tag our own database based on what she was talking about, whether it was gender inequality, feminism, relationships, sex, marriage, anti-Semitism, racism, capital punishment, you name it, down to like how she described her own eye color, her height, her Mm -hmm. husband's weight, whatever it was, we created a database. So we had all this information in her own words. So as we developed the structure of the book, we decided again, as two women writers to then suffocate Elsie Robinson's voice and only allow her a quote here and there in her biography, we would actually be doing our readers a disservice. Hmm. And so we allowed Elsie Robinson in her own words to tell her own story interspersed like a braid between our authorial voice and hers. And so we're almost like three co-authors of this biography. I wonder if it read like that to you, where we kind of elevated Elsie into being a co-author of this book. Absolutely. And I think that's where the biography piece, or maybe that's where I'm saying the storytelling is so compelling. And and it is a page turner. I mean, it's one of these things where it's like, her story is incredible. And I'm, I'm curious because the people who are listening right now maybe haven't read the book and she is a spunky character. She is a plucky character and she also suffers so much and, and seems undeterred, resilient to such an extraordinary degree, honestly. And I'm curious what lessons you learned from spending this kind of time with her. I mean, what would you say that you admire about her, you know, as a, as a third author in your book? Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. The confluence of her different life stories of setback and then a triumph of death and loss in her life and then recalibrating and then moving forward despite it all. It resonated with me uh, in a very personal way. I lost both of my parents relatively young as a young adult. I got married and had my kids um, really without their guidance and support. I mean, that's the bulk of my young adult life and now into middle age. And that's been hard. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet I feel like I've been able to dig deep and really enjoy my life, right? There's that word and I like to use. It's like my parents died really young and that was really hard. And I can dig deep and love my life and love my kids and feel really inspired by the work I'm so lucky to do. 
And I feel like I found those um, strands over and over and over again in Elsie Robinson's story. I felt that she had grit Mm -hmm. and I found that really empowering. And she's a person when you're reading through your book and you're getting a sense of her voice, like there's just an urgency and she had a real sense of tapping in, I think, to universal feelings, emotions, you know, we do this as writers nowadays, I think there's, you know, a a zeitgeist and sort of, especially with memoir writing and personal essay, but she was doing this a hundred, more than a hundred years ago. So it's like to put it into that context, I kept being like, oh my gosh, she was doing, I mean, she's so ahead of her time in so many ways. And so I had a passage that I wanted to read to you to comment on uh, just so that, and also so that listeners could hear a little bit of her voice from inside your book. Oh, this Uh, is fun. I can't wait. Okay. good. (laughs) Yeah. So here's a little passage. I mean, this is her voice. So she says, "Uh, I only wanted one thing to understand people, to grasp life, to make some ordered pattern out of all this seeming waste and confusion. So steadily, I observed life as it came and went in my little street, thought about it, set it down, no, sorry, set down what I thought, and thereby unwittingly built a bridge between my isolated cell and the vast world of human beings. That just feels so female (laughs) in so many ways, and especially thinking about the limitations that she had during this time, which is, you know, I think when she's writing that it's maybe 1916 or 17. So say more about, you know, what the environment was and like how she was able to make a name for herself. I mean, it it really is kind of a, a shocking story in the grander context of the era. What she decided is remarkable. She decided that her life was not working for her in the sense of fulfillment. And on the surface, at the time, she had what society would say in that era was the epitome of success. She had landed a husband. She had landed a husband who lived in a massive mansion. It was called one of the biggest and largest and yet most pretentious homes in all of like Southern Vermont. And so she had security. She had uh, a mansion, I think, with fireplaces on every floor. (laughs) And so in those superficial terms, but not just superficial, right? Her, she wasn't seeking for shelter or or food. She had mm-hmm. what to give her son. That's privilege. And yet it wasn't enough for her. And so she decided to leave her husband at a time where women were not leaving their husbands to go 3,000 miles at the time she was living in Brattleboro, Vermont, to go back to California, which is where she was from, to start over. And what she had to do to make ends meet was she ended up working in a gold mine 600 feet below the surface of the earth for three years. And all the other miners, of course, were men. And at night, after a full shift of working in the mine, 
that's when she would work on her side hustle and she would begin to write. And I just, uh, that's hardcore. (laughs) I'm so glad you brought that up because there's this other part that just really stirred me. Um, she's such an interesting and inspiring figure. Uh, when she starts to talk about, I, I wrote down the page number here. Okay. Page 156. Cause she starts to say like when other young people come to me and ask me about writing. Oh, the perfect know, conditions. Is that where you're going <laughs> to the perfect conditions? Exactly. She says, I grin today when I read requests from ambitious youngsters asking how they shall begin writing or whines from temperamental oldsters who complain about their genius is being frustrated because they can't have the proper conditions for writing proper conditions. I wonder what they are. I have never known them. How did I start writing after everything else was done? I mean, amen. Right. I mean, I feel like she is no excuse. Like I feel like I had young kids. They're older now, but like, how do you start writing? You set the alarm for five 30 in the morning. (laughs) Kids are still sleeping and you have the house a little bit to yourself. Or to be honest, like if I was you know, taking my daughter to gymnastics class, I would sit on the little plastic chair outside the gym and write a paragraph. It's like, I get it. And Elsie was doing that back then and writing about it. It was like that no BS. It was like, get out of your own way and you can't wait for it to be idyllic. You just have to do it. And I found that to be Gripping. I thought her writing, as you have said, um, was just remarkable. And I brought a quote too. I wanted to read. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to put on my glasses, but <laughs> I just, I just love this one. So we hear all about feminist words and language. And we think about Gloria Steinem, of course. And we think about Betty Friedan, of course, and other major trailblazers. But I want to read you one quote from Elsie Robinson that was written, I think it was 10 years before Gloria Steinem was even born. So here is this. I think it's from 1922. This is on gender equality. I'm tired of hearing the differences of men and women emphasized and exploited It has built a wicked wall between the sexes and it is time we knocked it down. (laughs) It's declarative. It's clear that these false kind of categories to put gender in, right? That's a current conversation we're having now. She's talking about men and women. I am certain her arguments would have evolved into Mm -hmm. today's culture of evolving pronouns. I just think that she was uh, ill at ease with false categorization. And I just find that to be really just before her time. Yeah, it's it's so true. I mean, and, and in so many ways, I mean, she models that with her life, the choices that she made, as you said, leaving the security of all of this wealth and taking her son across the country. It's it's just an inspiring story in so many ways. And there's all of the inspiring history. So I want to ask you about the history. But before we get there, I also think there's something very powerful uh, in terms of lessons learned about rejection, because she goes around. I mean, she sends in her stories 
they get rejected. She goes to the papers in San Francisco. She gets rejected. She doesn't stop. You know, she keeps sending stuff in. She goes to the East Bay to try to get her stories published over there. And then finally it works for her. So again, I mean, I think since you've spent so much more time with her, I just wondered what takeaways you have from these stories of her essentially being undeterred. I mean, to the point that at one point in the story, she's considering prostitution. I mean, she's that destitute and she wakes up the next day or whatever. And it's like, no, I'm going to write this story and I'm going to try one more time. I, I, it's stark, just the amount of, you know, energy and, and sort of, um, yeah, just perseverance. Yeah. She also considered suicide. Um, those moments are not light. And, um, I've been a writer for a long time. Uh, and it's not easy. Uh, even though I am five books in and I have written a lot for different publications, I still get rejected when I pitch story ideas to editors. It just takes a lot of um, stamina. I think that's what Elsie Robinson had in spades. It also took a lot of um rolling with the punches and not letting it get to you. And I feel like the world does not lay out the red carpet for most people too often. And I've experienced that. Um, one of her great lines, and I'm just going to paraphrase it, was about being a columnist. And she basically said to her readers, so you go be a columnist. Mm. anointed me a columnist. <laughs> I made myself a columnist because I wanted to be a columnist. And I feel like that's a really important point when writers who haven't been published or writers who haven't gotten that book deal yet feel like they need to have some sort of special invitation and I think the lesson with Elsie Robinson in Listen World is, uh-uh, no, you don't. You have to do it and then keep trying until you break down that door because someone at some point will give you that opening. And I feel like she's a great example of that. Yeah, or you give yourself that opening in some cases, right? I mean, especially in this world, right, where people are creating in all different kinds of ways. So I, I do love that about her who she is on the page. Um, is, you know, can I just say one thing? That's actually a remarkable point, Brooke, because back in her day, you know, her job at the Oakland Tribune uh, began in 1918. And so the gatekeepers then were men who were her editors in real offices, in real buildings with real elevators that you had to get through, <laughs> right? With real secretaries who you had to get by. Um, and so- the point of entry for writers was actually much more difficult than right. it is today. And so we can actually publish ourselves just by, you know, going on Substack, right? Like you can see your words out in the ether to be absorbed and be effective. And there are so much fewer of those gatekeepers keeping your words um, inside. 
Yeah, what a great point. And uh, I mean, both that's inspiring for writers today because we do have so many more points of entry, as you said, and also inspiring to look at what she was able to do. I mean, just this there there had to have been this sense of confidence in her stories. And I do, I mean, her writing just gets, you say this in the book, you know, she gets more confident with her writing, her writing gets better. She's so prolific, as you mentioned. And so I do want to ask you, because uh, just recently you had a piece uh, published in CNN or on CNN, talking about archiving and specifically about how the Smithsonian doesn't have women journalists well tagged. I mean, love for you to say more, but essentially that you really struggled to find her work in print at all. Uh, and, and you said, I thought it was interesting. I mean, on the one hand, you said like her bosses had a lack of foresight. So that would be uh, Hearst and the whole Hearst Foundation and her editors. Um, but also it's more systemic than that, that women's voices have not been cataloged and saved and honored by history. So say more about this and also the Smithsonian initiative that seems to be underway. I am so glad you brought that up. So the CNN piece is near and dear to me. And please look it up. You can just go to CNN and search my name and women in archives and you will find it right away. What the Smithsonian is doing right now is miraculous. And it's not just at the Smithsonian. So the Smithsonian, as we know, is the world's largest uh, museum and archive like in the world. And what you cannot do at the Smithsonian is shocking to me. You cannot search by gender. And so what that means, and I'll just explain it really quickly, is that if you wanted to look up women in business or women in journalism and come across a new name that maybe you have never heard of before to expand your knowledge base about women's achievements, you cannot do that. So what you need to do when you go to an institution like the Smithsonian is search for names of women that you do know, which of course, by its very nature, limits the number of women's voices that mm -hmm. we get to know. So what they are now doing is a massive effort and not just at the Smithsonian, this is happening at Harvard and Yale and at Columbia and major archives across the entire country, New York Public Library. I mean, basically, wherever you are, this is happening. These are called reparative initiatives, where now they are taking millions of data points of the objects in collections and literally re-tagging how you can search them. So gender is included. So we can find women's history. When we began researching Elsie Robinson's life, and still to this day, there is no repository for Elsie mm -hmm. Robinson's papers. Everything that we had found in regard to her career, salary, negotiations, and the like, were located in the repository and papers of the men who employed her. So mm -hmm. in her case, you go to the William Randolph Hearst papers, you can do some digging and find information about Elsie Robinson, but that's a tall order. You would have to know to look 
for Elsie Robinson in order to stumble across Elsie Robinson. And so the CNN piece uh, was near and dear to my heart. Well, it's such an important one because I think, I mean, you write in the book actually, and I appreciated this in the epilogue and you sort of said, look, other people didn't take care of her legacy, but Elsie didn't take care of her legacy. And I wonder what you make of that. And I'll just turn it to you. Yeah, she had no work-life balance. She was a work horse. She uh, complained in the day of what they called overwork, right? We would have a different term for it now. And because she worked so hard, sometimes publishing six days a week, if you can imagine spitting out content in that kind of incredible volume, it left her no time to really curate and cultivate her own legacy. And so I don't think that she gets a free pass. Uh, She could have, while she was living, designated a repository for her papers. She knew, of course, as we all do, that the death rate, you know, still holds at 100%. She could have (laughs) made a plan for her work and she didn't. And so I feel like there's a lesson, to be honest, in there for all of us. How do we want to be remembered? And what steps are we taking to ensure that we curate as we would our brand while we're alive? How are we going to cultivate the papers, the photographs that will tell our story, our brand, after we're gone. And she did not do that. This this whole book ends kind of early on in her career. And so the last, I guess, 20 years is sort of summed up, you know, she wrote many more articles kind of thing. So tell me why you chose to, you know, give that kind of attention to those early years and to her making it. And then I also thought an interesting point to share with people is that her salary (laughs) when Hearst gives her the offer is like $22,000, which in today's money is $335,000. So she was making a really hefty salary there at the end. I mean, a wealthy woman toward the middle years of her life. But I want to put you on the spot. I'm so curious, by the way, Brooke, I want to put you on the spot. You're right. We do end fade to black when things are good and on the trajectory of getting better. And I'm wondering if that felt to you like a good place to end or did it leave you frustrated? I'm dying to know (laughs) your point of view. You know, it it felt like you ended on her making it. And, you know, because of the way that you summed it up, I I found it very satisfying, you know, because this I, I have to say that I very much appreciated that the book didn't go on and on and on. Like I have read a lot of biographies that I feel like you reach a certain point and you're like, dear God, I'm only halfway through. And it's one of the reasons that I don't read as many biographies as I might. So that's what I, you know, when I said it's a page turner, it's not overly long. It has images, you know, cause she was an illustrator. So I think it's a brilliant balance. Well, It's funny. I'm so glad we're talking about this because I haven't had a chance to even talk about this publicly. I don't think we're really wrestling with how to end the book. And in the end, we all agreed that struggle is much more interesting than someone living life to the max, 
and things are easy because how many pages can you read where things are just going really well? Mm-hmm. To us, it felt like the struggle to get where she ended up going was far more compelling than the years where she was just in that mode of being comfortable. I mean, sure, still working hard. I'm not disputing that. But yeah, so the fade to black is that Hollywood moment of (laughs) she arrived and it just kept being great, you know? Um, And so, yeah, so we struggled with that, but that was the ultimate decision. That struggle is far more entertaining. Well, I'm curious what is one of your absolute favorite scenes you know what's like a little story from the book that you just come back to again and again oh my gosh when she taught herself how to type Mm. a manual typewriter in the middle of her hut in the gold mining town in of hornitos she literally, I don't know if you remember this part of the book. I found it to be so captivating. She didn't know how to type. And she was given what she called at that time an old-fashioned typewriter. We ended up finding the actual typewriter. We're 99.9% certain that it's true. We found her typewriter in a locked post office that has been defunct since the mid-1950s when she died. And with the help of typewriter experts, and there are, we could then date where this typewriter came from, the years that it was produced, and the regions that it was used. And we are 99.9% certain this was her typewriter. What she did was she followed the directions back then of the typewriter manuals. She had to cover her eyes so she couldn't peek at the keys and learned how to do touch typing. She taught herself on a manual typewriter. And here's the kicker. The last thing I'll say about it. We think typing on a computer is hard. This manual typewriter was worse (laughs) than what you could even imagine in terms of how complicated it was. This manual typewriter had two entire sets of keys. One entire set were lowercase letters and one entire set were capital letters. It was before the invention of the shift key. Wow. It's crazy. That is amazing. Yeah, and you have photos of that typewriter in the book, which is just fascinating to look at. And I'm glad you said that because interestingly, that was one of my favorite scenes too. But before she learns to type, the reason, I mean, it was just so touching to the point that it brought tears to my eyes. She has this very close friendship with the woman who works at the post office and that woman loans her this typewriter and it's this beautiful story of women supporting women I mean there's this friendship in this book between these two women and this other woman is a black woman you know they both are sort of fish out of water in a sense you know living these very these uh, maybe not deemed to be okay by societal terms, lives, and they find each other. And I, that just really resonated with me. I agree that friendship um, is heartening. And when Julia Shears, my co-author and I went to this ghost town, which is now really more or less a ghost town, there are a few people left who still live in Hornitos, this town where they lived. Uh, there is actually a monument 
erected in Hornitos, California, uh, to this woman who so uh, transformed Elsie Robinson's life. And so she was revered in this town. Um, Her father, um, you mentioned that she was a Black woman. Her father was born into slavery in Missouri, and he was taken to California as an enslaved man. Uh, When he uh, was given his freedom, uh, he became one of the most successful Black prospectors in the history of the American West. It's an incredible story. Yeah, well, there's just many, many facets of this person as there is in any life and you captured it so well. So congratulations on this book, Allison. I'm really honored that you invited me to interview you tonight. So thank you. Thank you so much. I love your work. I love She Writes Press. I love the Right Minded Podcast. (laughs) Oh my God. It's like one of my favorite podcasts. I'm a huge fan. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, everyone. If you enjoyed this interview, please read the book. It's a great story honoring the life of someone all writers should know about. Everyone should know about Elsie, but especially women writers. And we know a lot of you are well into NaNoWriMo. Happy week two to all of you who are participating. We hope you're going strong. And if you falter, don't give up. Pick it back up again and keep going. You've got this. And I will see you next week with Grant back in the co-pilot seat. 